One thing about mama, she is going to make sure that everyone else is taken care of before she even thinks about treating herself. So if you are looking for the perfect gift to make mom feel special this Mother's Day, make sure you check out the Mega Moisture Duo from Osea Malibu because body care is self-care. Since 1996, Osea has been making clean, clinically proven, seaweed-infused skincare. So this Mother's Day, treat mom to the everyday spa experience she deserves. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GSPP at OseaMalibu.com. Plus, you'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use code GSPP for 10% off. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. You can wish for it or you can work for it. You gotta work for greatness. If you ain't working, you should be working. These are the confessions of a workaholic. Welcome to Confessions of a Workaholic, where we share the success secrets of fearless female entrepreneurs who are obsessed with success. This is your girl, Coriel. So excited to have you back for another week to get up close and personal with another boss. This episode is brought to you by The Work Squad, which is the support group you need when you are dedicated to the dream. Our private accountability community is the perfect place for you to connect, exchange ideas, learn new tricks, barter your skills, and get the keys you need to crush your goals. For information on how you can join The Work Squad for just $10 a month, check the show notes below or log on to workpraislay.com. So today we are talking to Hope Wiseman. Hope is a serial entrepreneur, speaker, and founder of Mary and Maine, which is a medical cannabis dispensary in Capitol Heights, Maryland. Hope, are you ready to confess? I'm ready. <laughs> okay, so I always like to start the conversation by asking how you started your career, because I always find it so interesting how our passions tend to lead us away from our profession. So what did you actually start your career out doing? Yeah, so I started my career in investment banking, actually. Uh, I was straight out of school and my whole time in college, every summer I was interning at different investment banks on Wall Street. Um, and I really thought that's where I was going to be. I had no idea. Had you asked me, you know, 10 years ago about the cannabis industry, I wouldn't have even thought that was like a realistic opportunity. So, okay, that leads me right into my next question. And I guess it's a kind of natural progression because if you're in any type of, if you're in the investment industry, um, you know, like professionally, then of course, cannabis, you know, comes yeah. up. Even mm -hmm. from the outside looking in, just people who talk about, you know, stocks, we're talking about cannabis. Yeah. So it's kind of, it seems natural that if you're in that industry, if you're having these conversations that cannabis is, you know, like a buzz, it's people are talking yeah. about. But what actually piqued your interest initially um, as far as getting into the cannabis industry? Well, so my educational background is in economics. I was uh, a newly uh, graduated 
uh, full the first time having a full-time job, you know, straight out of school. I was just so fresh on, on the scene. Um, but I was really into economics and looking at economic trends. Um, so I remember one day watching CNBC and seeing a chart of the growth of the cannabis industry. So this is back in like 2014. And I just remember seeing an arrow shooting straight up and down. And I had never seen a chart that was that really had a straight line in it before um, <laughs> going that way. I'd seen a straight line going down before. Um, but, you know, I just thought to myself, wow, this is going to be one of the biggest industries of my lifetime um, that I'll have the opportunity to, to be a part of. Um, that's that's newly emerging and growing so quickly, and uh, it was it's not only growing quickly but very very large. So just to see that type of growth, I was instantly inspired, and I, I have to attribute that to my background in economics. I was so used to looking at charts that that chart caught my eye initially. So initially for me, it really was all about the economic opportunity of the industry. So we always hear, you know, how few and far between the opportunities are for people of color in the cannabis industry. Is anything changing? You know, you're obviously, you know, on the inside, you know, so you got like the insider information. But <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like things are actually changing? And then part two of that question is what's our real way in? Like, what is the best way that you see that, you know, people of color have the opportunity to get in? Yeah. So I think... Before we, I even get into the answers to both of those questions, it's important to understand why that and what exactly these barriers are um, for minorities and people of color who are interested in the industry. The main reason is because uh, the main barrier to entry is, is capital. You know, right now, because it's federally illegal, uh, there's no real way for someone to be able to acquire the amount of capital that's needed to be in these limited licensing states. So by that, I mean every state right now is operating under its own laws. It's federally illegal. So some states like California have thousands of licensees, and then you have other states like Maryland that have, um, you know, under 30 uh, licensees that are actually uh, able to cultivate and process cannabis. So you look in those two scenarios and you see that there could be large disparities in who could enter and not enter the market. Um, that being said, you know, I think what, what we should be doing as minorities right now is just trying to be a part of the industry in any way, shape, or form. The real way in right now is not only on the plant touching side, so meaning a dispensary or a, you know, a cultivation site or a processing site, um, but really on the ancillary side, the non-plant touching side. So pretty much whatever your, your typical skill set is that you already have, you can transfer that into this industry. Um, out of the, uh, the $50 billion uh, that is being predicted that the cannabis industry will be worth by 2026, over half of that is going to come from just ancillary businesses. So I think it's important for people to, to look at what they're already good at. If you are a real estate agent, um, figuring out how to transfer those skills into the cannabis industry, accountants, uh, lawyers, marketing professionals and branding professionals. Um, tech is a huge, cannabis and tech is, is, there's so much opportunity there. I mean, I think that we got to look kind of alternatively um, on how to get into the industry. It's not just about touching the plant. 
And there are some states that are trying their best to do, to implement programs in the laws that are coming out to help minorities be successful. Uh, Illinois is a great example of that. They just um, announced their adult use program, which will roll out uh, at the top of the year, um, January 1st, 2020. And they have a really uh, great program that I think you'll see duplicated in a lot of states as they uh, implement adult use laws. Okay, so that was going to be my next question is, you know, so many people think, okay, if I want to be in the cannabis industry, I got to start a dispensary. Right. And so I love that you said, you know, there's so many other ways for you to use your existing skill set, but still be able to take advantage of this, you know, industry that is going to be so profitable. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when we see the statistics, and we don't even have to see the statistics to know, you know, the the numbers as far as the the number of Black men, people, but black men that are incarcerated still for crimes related to, you know, this same industry that so many other non-people of color are profiting um, off of. And so we got to get our piece of the pie. So um, for everyone out there listening, you don't have to just, you know, think that dispensaries are the, the only way for you to get a piece of it. But if someone is interested in, you know, getting into the dispensary um, industry, especially because, you know, so many cities across the country are even, you know, legalizing not just medical cannabis, but even recreational, um, what is like a realistic investment? What are the numbers really looking like if someone, you know, listening is interested in the dispensary route? Yeah. So if you're looking at, you know, going into owning a dispensary and you're in a state that's about to put out uh, applications for new licensees, I mean, you're looking at at this point with with major players who have emerged over the years um, that have now been able to raise a lot of money. Um, and in order for you to be competitive with someone like, you know, a, a giant right now that's on the Canadian Stock Exchange, you're looking at at least... Two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars in the pre-licensing stage. So just trying to get your ducks in a row to apply will cost you about two or three hundred thousand. Um, and some companies are spending, you know, close to a million dollars in that stage. Um, so to be competitive, you know, that's that's what I'd say there. And then post award, um, you know, for a dispensary, it definitely depends on the state. It depends on the cost of real estate and if you're able to purchase your own real estate or if you're going to be leasing from someone, but it's also very difficult to difficult to lease from people in this industry because it is federally illegal. And a lot of people don't want their mortgages called by banks that are backed by the federal government. So you, I mean, there's just so much that goes into play, which would determine how much money you would need. But on the back end, I would say anywhere between a million and $5 million. And you can easily go through that 200K before you're even approved. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and that is money that you probably will go through uh, before you're approved. And if you are not approved, it is not given back to you. So it is, I mean, it's, it's definitely a huge risk. And it's a risk that my family took. Uh, we had, um, you know, it was me, my mother, and one other investor um, and then the three of us, and who was also a longtime family friend, and the three of us, we we spent about two hundred and fifty, almost three hundred thousand um, dollars to apply for. We originally applied for a dispensary, a cultivation, and a processing license in Maryland in two thousand and fifteen. 
and we were awarded a dispensary license, but we were not awarded our cultivation and processing license in the first round. Um, and had we not won a dispensary license, that money would have went poof. <laughs> and so that is where um, the lack of, you know, people of color participating, that's where it comes in because yeah. most of us, the people I know, we're not sitting on $200,000 to just play with, you know, to just throw in and hope, you know, that we can do something with it. And so that is why, um, you know, the, the, um, organizations like by the block and these different, yeah. you know, crowdfunding and, you know, pooling our resources together to be able to do something. That's why it's so beneficial that we start looking for ways to collaborate, you know, and, and really pool our resources instead of, you know, cause the, the likelihood of me raising $200,000 to just play with it's slim it's, to it's rough. I mean, like the only reason I was able to do it, I tell people all the time, is because my mother and Dr. Bryant, our third partner, they literally like lifted me up and put me on their shoulders. That is the only reason, and I'm forever indebted to them. I mean, we've, we've since applied for additional licenses, and I've been able to raise a, more money um, myself. Um, but that's only because of what I was able to do because of what my mother and Dr. Bryant uh, could do for me. So it really is all about kind of, we definitely have to pull together resources if minorities really want to be a part of this. Um, I think we're going to start seeing that, that states will start to help though. Like Illinois, the, in the a bill that they just passed that is now law, they have $30 million set aside to help minority-owned businesses uh, acquire licenses in the upcoming applications. So I think you're going to start to see more programs like that emerge. I mean, but then you have states like my state, Maryland, that's in a deficit that could never come up with $30 million to help. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's very political. Um, and to be honest, at this stage of the game, you have to kind of be on the front lines. I do a lot of time lobbying myself. And I have a lobbyist that works for me. Um, and a lot of these companies, I mean, that's how they get stuff done. Uh, we have the unique opportunity to shape the laws around this industry right now. So that's what a lot of the larger companies or just pretty much anyone who's trying to be a player right now um, is focused on making sure that the laws are written in a way that benefit them. And me personally, I'm making sure that the laws are written in a way that help minorities at least have a chance to become a part of the industry as well as to try and reverse some of the wrong that was done during the war on drugs. So you mentioned part of one of the problems, right? I'm sure there's like so much like red tape and just so many obstacles that, that you run into. But one of the things that you mentioned is that although it's legal, you know, in your city or in your state federally, it's still um, illegal. And so there's that side of things that you're literally taking a risk every day. Um, but even though it's you know, medicinal and recreational is becoming legal in more and more cities, people are still judgmental as hell. Do you yeah. ever get the side eye um, from people because of the industry that you're in? You know, I think now because it's, it's becoming more mainstream and people are seeing these numbers and how big the industry is because I'm on the business side and I, I conduct myself pretty professionally and all that. I think that I don't get too much of it, but to be honest, you know, I, I see some of my peers that might have more, you know, like lifestyle brands or recreational type of brands, and they might be posting pictures of them smoking J's or doing dabs all the time, but they're very smart 
um, professional and business oriented, but they might just put that image out there, they get judged a little bit, even by professionals in this industry, because you got a lot of people transferring over to the cannabis industry that are, you know, just Fortune 500 executives, and you got political figures and community leaders that are jumping into it. But a lot of the original pioneers, you know, they're really like about that life for real. So <laughs> they're not used to it. And, you know, I can kind of like, I kind of have both feet, I have a foot in both sides. So for me, like I can, you could take me anywhere and I can fit in. Um, but, and I don't feel like I get a side eye very much because of that, just because of, you know, what I look like and how I dress. And if I had a bunch of tattoos and like I said, if I, if I smelt like weed everywhere I went, I do think I would get judged because I see my peers who are just as intelligent and have just you know, all the same type of promise that I have get judged for the way that they look or <laughs> how they might smell. So speaking <laughs> of being judged for, for the way that you look, even aside from being in this specific industry, as a young, beautiful Black woman, we're often put in this box. Like, if you look this way, I assume that you're in this industry or you work this job or you're at this level versus, you know, you being in a male-dominated industry and then pretty little hope comes in the room and, you know, people don't expect you to be as bossed up as you are. So how do you deal or do you deal? You know, I'm just making an assumption based on my own, you know, my own experiences. Yeah. So how do you maintain in a male dominated industry? And do you find that people, um, you know, maybe don't take you as serious as the buttoned up white man sitting, you know, at the other end? How do you deal with those experiences? I definitely think I've, so I've been experiencing this for a long time and it probably started back. I used to do pageants growing up and just, you know, it was a different type of discrimination at that point, but even then I had to learn how to deal with it. So fast forward to working in investment banking, that was my first taste at it. And I wasn't nearly as smart as I am now. (laughs) I didn't have nearly the amount of self-confidence or anything. And back then I had like long blonde hair. I don't know who I thought. I think I thought I was Beyonce. So, um, but I had to learn back then how to communicate in a way that people could take me seriously because I quickly realized, okay, you're attractive and that's all that they are going to see. So real fast, even back then I realized, okay, every meeting you go into, say something meaningful, even if you don't have anything really to say. Figure out something meaningful to say. Listen in for a little while and figure it out. And that used to be my thing. And it really helped me gain the confidence to where now I'm so confident in the fact that I know my stuff. I don't go into meetings that I'm not prepared for that. You know, I just I I go out of my way uh, to make sure that it's known. I feel like as a beautiful black woman, you are going to have to to take the extra mile um, and you kind of have to almost expect to have to do it. And I'm always prepared where if I notice that a meeting is going down that way to be able to bring it back in a way that's not offensive um, and that continues on the professional atmosphere, but in a way that lets everyone know, like, look, I'm about my stuff and I'm here for business and business only. Um, But it's definitely a skill that it takes nurturing. (laughs) I don't go into meetings I'm not prepared for. Write that down. I hope y'all heard that. That's like a, that's a little word right there. I don't mm-hmm. go into meetings I'm not prepared for. Okay, so that brings me, look, you are like 
segue in this thing for me right into my next question, um, because my next question is about relationships. We always talk on the show about just the value, regardless of the industry you're in, regardless of the goals you have or where you're trying to get to. Somebody is going to be on the other side of that door to open it up for you. Somebody's going to be on the other side of that email inbox, you know, to respond and give you that opportunity. How important have relationships been to your career? And do you have any advice for people who may just be getting started in, in whatever industry they're in, but they know that they need to start creating those relationships. So how important have they been and what's your advice for, for creating or nurturing business relationships? Yeah. Wow. Um, relationships are everything guys. They're everything. Um, for me, you know, my, my start in this industry, obviously started with my mother. And of course that's a, you know, really close relationship, but I had been nurturing the business side of our relationship for years. So much so that she trusted me enough that we could embark on this huge endeavor together. And yes, I mean, I grew up pretty comfortably, but trust me, my family wasn't rolling in money. This was a really big deal to be able to put almost everything we had into this opportunity. But it's because I had nurtured the business side of my relationship with her. So she trusted me and really believed in the dream. And now it's happening. Um, But relationships have carried me throughout every piece of almost everything I've ever done. Um, and I believe that's why I'm successful because I'm able to cultivate meaningful relationships. I don't just try and meet everybody in the room. I'm really not the biggest fan of like lots of networking events either. Um, because like, I like to meet, you know, one or two people and really take the time to cultivate those, but you got to be intentional, uh, with those people. Like who are the people you need to know? Um, and why do you need to know them? And then what can you offer them to make sure that the relationship is beneficial on both sides um, to help you get to where you need to be. And then also you have to know that a lot of times like looking for people that are doing what you're, that you want to do, they, they want to give back, you know, they want to help. They, especially if it's someone that can remind them of themselves. So I always, when I went to JP Morgan the first time, I found the highest black woman in the bank that I could possibly get a meeting with and that she ended up becoming my mentor. I knew that she would see me in her. I knew it. I had done research. I knew what she liked and what she didn't. I already knew all of that. And I knew she would see me in her. So as soon as I got to have a meeting with her, it was instant. I feel like you just have to be really intentional with those relationships and design the life you want. I love it. Okay, last question, I hope. This is good. Good and juicy. I hope they got their notebooks out. Okay. If you could write a recipe for success. So this is Hope's recipe for success. It can only include three ingredients, though. Mm -hmm. What would those three ingredients be? Okay, the first thing, I've said it a few times today already, go out of your way. Um, Do things, make yourself uncomfortable. Uh, That's always where the biggest opportunities show up when you're out of your comfort zone. So go out of your way. Um, The next thing would be to... hmm, I would say, because I, I was going to say take risks, but that really is, is talking about going out of your way. I feel like that can encompass so much. The next thing would be to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you um, and have the skill sets that you don't have. Uh, that, that's a huge thing for me because I'm really young. I've never run a company of this size and I'm trying to grow to, to these crazy heights right now. And I've never run a multi-million dollar company. So I have to hire people around me that have. Um, And that's really important to be able to humble yourself. Um, And then the last thing would be never forget your why. Because I think a lot of times as people get uh, more successful, 
uh, you kind of forget uh, why you really started in the first place. It might kind of turn into a money thing or, and I feel like when you let things turn into a money thing, you, you don't, you're not a good person anymore. Uh, so never forget your why, your passion, the people you love and, and your, your, your humanity um, as you become successful. Hope, I have truly enjoyed this conversation, and I know that my listeners appreciate all of these gems that you have been dropping. Please let them know where they can find you online, how they can support you um, locally, if they happen to be in the Capitol Heights, Maryland area, and how they can uh, connect with you on social media. Yes, so you can find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at I am hope so dope and all of that spelled all the way out. Um, I'm also dropping my personal website um, in, a, in a course about uh, trans- transferring your skills into the cannabis industry is dropping in a few weeks at hopewiseman.com. So you can head over there and sign up for our mailing list to be informed when it comes out. And then if you are in the Maryland area or if you just want to stay up to date with what's going on in the cannabis industry. And we drop a lot of educational content about cannabis. Um, you can follow my company, Mary in Maine, uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Mary, A-N-D-M-A-I-N, um, or on our website at www.maryandmaine.com. This has been another game-changing episode of Confessions of a Workaholic, meant to empower and encourage you to get that ass to work. You already have everything you need to get everything you want if you're willing to do the work. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you. See you next week. Bye, guys. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.